someone said to me once, like, formula isn't rat poison. <laughs> which, well, I hope was not. Like a, <laughs> which was like a very helpful thing because I do think that in our efforts as a society to normalize breastfeeding, we have in some ways necessarily demonized formula in this way that is not fair and also I think creates a lot of shame for people. One thing I've sort of reconciled in my head and thought a lot about was going into this, having watched a lot of my friends struggle with breastfeeding. I, I was, people would say, are you planning to breastfeed? And I was, I would say, yes, if I can, but if I can't, I recognize that like that's, that doesn't happen for everyone. Two guys talking about their babies and supporting their ladies, talking about the struggle, talking about Big Papa. Hello again. Welcome to Big Papa's, the Welcome. podcast for modern dads. I'm Dan Worry-Smith. And I'm Pierre Hamilton. <laughs> it's episode five. We're talking about feeding people. You got to get your kid fed. You got to feed. Every, you got to eat. Everybody's got to eat. I think that's pretty clear. <laughs> Let there be no disputing that feeding <laughs> your baby is one of the most important things. And right off the bat, you're going to have to do it. Baby's born. Boom. Baby's going to eat. Very quickly. There's also going to be diapers to change, you may yep. find. Uh, and what's the third one? Sleeping. That's basically what happens yep. at the very beginning. But eating comes first. What is more important than nourishing your baby? It's the most crucial aspect of everyday life with an infant. Are they taking to breastfeeding easily? They don't all do that. Is the milk supply sufficient for sustenance? It, it, it isn't always, okay? Are there alternate means of feeding that perhaps are being used? There is not only so many different possibilities of the way this goes for different babies and mothers and parents and families, but there's also this whole way that society looks upon it. You know, women breastfeeding in public often get shunned, all right? Women feel like if their babies don't breastfeed, if they're not supplying enough, that somehow they're inadequate. To me, this seems like very unfair fair, kind of backwards, uh, in the case of public breastfeeding, like a puritanical way of looking at this stuff. Uh, and, and I found it, uh, you know, as um, a husband supporting uh, a mother of a little baby, uh, I found it pretty illuminating and interesting, uh, just the ways that things are thought of uh, and the patterns that uh, people expect to fit into, uh, and then the reality of what actually happens when things don't go exactly as maybe you'd expect them to. And I'm, I'm willing to bet that in fact most cases are probably not exactly by the book and that there's a lot of curveballs being thrown to a lot of young mothers and babies when it comes to feeding um anyways that's our theme for today pierre damn uh, it dan you are animated i'm fired up yeah i mean feeding really brought the beast out in you maybe i should have had lunch before i came that's in. <laughs> you're hangry oh that's the problem yeah 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 you're hungry and you're angry maybe we should maybe we should take a take a yeah let's go let's, go let's leave let's leave <laughs> And we're back. We're back on Big Papa's. We're so talking, we're talking feeding, Pierre. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> this is the one I think you you touched on all of the different aspects of feeding that I think I went through and didn't know what to expect. This is one of those things again where yeah, we did some uh, some lessons before uh, Zadie was born, and I thought to myself, this seems easy. There's a bunch of signs up in the hospital when we did our classes. They were like breastfeeding; it's natural. You got to do it. And I was like, okay, obviously, <laughs> this seems like the thing that we're gonna do. What what is maybe just absolutely frustrating is that it just it wasn't that simple. Um, 
Jess had a C-section, um, and when we actually got to the state that, that she was trying to feed, it just didn't come as natural. And I think the issue, as you, you stated sort of uh, so eloquently in your intro, is that whatever the way we as a society have intertwined the idea of like what it means to be a mom, and that is tied up and linked to breastfeeding. Like if you don't do it, you're not a real mom or you're not a good mom. Mm. And that is, you know, again, that's a terrible notion because it means that there's immediately after you have this child, suddenly there's this new thing that you're, you have to deal with. And I know for us, what happened was that, um, it was, it was hard for Jess. And so we went in, we did some, some lessons at the, you know, the, the, uh, like a breastfeeding clinic and, you know, it seemed again, easy there, but then you go home and you're by yourself. Um, you know, now I, you know, we've done, we've done an episode, uh, talking a little bit about, uh, midwi- midwifery, midwifery, um, and how they come into the, uh, how they come into your house afterwards and can support you. And that's a thing that I wish we had because there were nights and there were days, especially in the first two weeks and beyond where Jess, it just happened that we, she would have to sort of tie it or like sort of tape a little tube to her boob to help feed Zadie. She wasn't getting enough food regularly. So we, we tried to find all these different ways. Let's get, you know, um, all these, uh, natural sort of, um, supplements to sort of enhance bre- breastfeeding and breast milk production. And it, and at the end of the day, it didn't work. And she had to come to a conclusion. And I know she, it was that she just came and told me one day, she said, look, I can't, do this anymore for me to be happy going forward. We need to stop. And I know that on my end, I was very much like, I hear you. I've been, you know, here with you through all of the trials and tribulations as we've gone along. And my whole thing was, I'm just here to support you and trying to let her know it doesn't make you any less of a mom because you can't do this thing. And I think that, that again, there's a huge buildup, um, especially around, again, this idea that it's like, it's so much better. If you don't do it, there's something wrong with you. And I think that's a notion that I think we need to reexamine and, and really reconsider. And I would say, arguably, just get rid of, throw it away. Dan, what was, uh, what was your experience? Well, maybe I came in hot off the top because um, this did kind of hit hard in our household. Uh, Goldie, as, as I mentioned in the in the childbirth episode, when Goldie was born, uh, she wasn't breathing properly. She was stunned is what they called it. And so she, uh, as a result of being born in that way and them needing to monitor her first few days of life, she was in the NICU for the first few days. So that meant that she was being fed uh, with bottles by the nurses there on some occasions. And during that period, Zoe was in the hospital seeing the lactation consultant and attempting to develop the breastfeeding along with Goldie. Now, uh, she didn't take to breastfeeding. And over those first, uh, after we, we left the NICU over the next few weeks at home, uh, Zoe tried. She saw a couple different lactation consultants. Um, she started pumping during this time as well. We started freezing as much of the milk as we possibly could, save up that supply. Um, and Goldie, you know, I remember on a couple occasions, it seemed like, oh, may- maybe she's getting it this time. You know, we, we tried quite a bit. Zoe tried quite a bit, I should say. Um, but she she didn't take to it. And... 
to be able to witness firsthand, you know, we've discussed in the past things that even though you've immersed yourself in this life of, you know, you're going to become a parent, somehow there's all of this information or all of these potential experiences that you just never really thought all that much about. For me to watch Zoe go through the stress and the honestly like the guilt of not just having breastfeeding be an easy thing um it was really eye-opening and uh you know i really felt for her and it was one of those many things that aside from just being present and being positive and communicating and showing that the love and support you can't do anything about it you know the feeling of helplessness is not a nice feeling to have that's the worst part really bad um it was did did you have sorry i need to interrupt but did you I would recall there'd be the like a moment, and I, it it probably happened more than once, but where I would either I'd wake up maybe and and I'd go in and and Jess would be trying to feed Zadie and 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 she just she would start crying, and I would be I'd like hey like what what's going on what's what's happening and she Jess just was, like Jess would start crying yeah Jess yeah. would start crying and and I would be I'd be like what no what's happening like what's what's going on and she's just like it's not like it's not working mm-hmm. and it again it's it's paralyzing to know and to feel like there's nothing you can do other than to say like, it's okay. We'll figure this out. Yeah. And, and it sucks. Um, it's, it's really hard to deal with, I think in those moments. And and I'm not saying it from my perspective, it's hard to not know what to do because there isn't anything you can do other than support, but it's also just hard to witness that. For sure. Yeah. I mean, to be overwhelmed is a pretty powerful experience. And I think, you know, I, I witnessed that happening to Zoe a lot. Mm-hmm. It's a, <laughs> actually, it's amazing. It's amazing that, that they have babies at all and that they, that they can endure any of it. Um, it's so incredible to see. I will say, um, you know, there was a, the fact that fairly early on, we kind of, realized, hey, Zoe's probably going to pump. You know, uh, it's probably not going to end up working out the breastfeeding. Uh, I'm trying to think now, but I know that, you know, even a couple weeks in, the fact that she wasn't doing it regularly and taking to it was cause for concern. Mm -hmm. I want to say somewhere around a month or six weeks, whether we gave up or whether we just kind of knew in the back of our mind, hey, Zoe will continue to try this, but it probably won't work out. We we had an idea that that, that's the way it was going to be. So then it becomes an issue of having enough supply in pumping and also (laughs) going Going through the insanely rigorous demands of pumping, that's eight times a day. You can't take the night shift off and sleep for eight straight hours. You have to wake up and pump. So Zoe would go and, you know, attach herself to this thing in the middle of the night and sit, you know, and look at read or look at Instagram or something. And, and which is weird because the whole thing is it's making this weird, like, yeah, which is the, the, the sucking, like, and yeah. It, it's weird. It's it's a it's a not again a natural thing, but the machine part of it makes it not very like very mechanical. Yeah, you're just like okay. Yeah, I'm just a part of a process. That's right. But <laughs> I will say, uh, you know, a very small silver lining, perhaps in this was knowing that the system was that Zoe was pumping and Goldie would be fed by bottle with her breast milk. Uh, it meant that there were more occasions where I could do the feeding. Mm-hmm. I did the dream feed, which is something that before I had a kid I had never heard of. And maybe if you're listening to this, you haven't heard of it. But to a lot of parents, I think these days that's a very uh, familiar term. A dream feed is when you've put your baby to sleep sometime early mid-evening as you would put a baby. And then even though they're already sleeping, you get them up and you give them a feeding around 10, 30, 11 p.m. And then that ought to sustain them then for another, you know, until 3 or 4 
or five, whatever it might be. I got into the habit of doing the dream feed every night. Um, and of course, there were other feedings that I could do where, not to take away from the fact that Zoe still had to pump, um, but where she didn't have to be the only one involved in feeding, where if you're breastfeeding, you know, clearly there's nothing you can do as the dad other than to to be there to support. Um, so I, and I, I remember really the same way that I've described rocking Goldie to sleep and finding a real sense of purpose and belonging in that experience every time I did it. The dream feed for me, I also really cherished every night as the thing that I would I would go grab Goldie, I'd take her to the couch, I'd feed her her bottle, and that would kind of be my nightcap, and, and I'd go to sleep after that. Um, and it was a very similar experience to putting her to bed where um, you know, I felt this, this is something uh, that has so much purpose to it. There's nothing in the universe that could be more important for me to commit my energy to right now than putting this baby to bed, than feeding this baby. Um, so yeah. it's really, you know, like a lot of stuff with parenting, there, there's an opportunity to have some really magical connection with your kid. Um, but of course that was all coming out of the fact that Zoe was going through, uh, a really, a really difficult experience. And I, I don't want to go, you know, too far into it. Um, but we, one of the experiences that I wanted to talk about was, uh, some, at some point when it was, we were about to decide either we're going to keep trying really hard at this or forget it. We're just going to pump and she's not going to try to breastfeed. Uh, we went to a breastfeeding clinic as supposedly one of the foremost experts on it. Um, and this is a guy, uh, it's certainly a very nice guy as far as his demeanor. And I certainly believe his credentials and I don't want to, you know, blow up his spot or anything. Uh, that's not what this is about. Watch but yourself on Twitter, man. The idea. Oh, this guy, this guy's heavy <laughs> on Twitter. This guy. Um, anyways, um, the point is to say he really made Zoe feel like it was a failure on her part to not be able to breastfeed the baby. Uh, failure may be a strong word, but what I mean to say is that he he underscored so heavily to her um, the benefits of having your baby breastfeed, mm -hmm. the connection that the baby makes to the mother. Um, I know that there, this is another fascinating thing that I learned, the baby through the saliva sends enzymes into the mother's body that is a message to tell the mother's body to generate more or less of certain things in the milk. Yeah, that yeah, communication yeah. was something that totally blew me away when I heard about it. Um, and so that, you know, this doctor's telling Zoe, like, uh, the baby's not going to, you're not going to be able to make those changes in the nutrients or, or whatever it is. Anyways, she was made to feel so stressed about it and so ashamed of the fact that, and something that was completely out of her control. Mm -hmm. And I really, I felt, I felt so bad for her. And and I felt so, um, you know, I just felt like it was disrespectful to our our family to be saying this kind of thing to us when clearly we probably weren't going to succeed in having Goldie be successfully breastfed, you know? So that was something that, that we, we experienced, but mostly that Zoe experienced that I was there holding her hand for and really feeling like it, it was unfair to her. Yeah, it's... I think when you go into, well, at least this is this was our experience as well. When you were in the hospital, there aren't signs that say it's okay not to breastfeed. There are many, many, many signs that are like, this is the right thing to do. This is this is the most important thing you can do at this early stage of your life. And I obviously there are elements of that to be true. I, I'd actually I, I remember when we took our class, um, hearing that oh yeah, breast milk is not just like this 
standard thing, which like every woman produces and it's exactly the same, that there is that connection between mother and child where it's actually like, you need more of this. So I'm going to give you this. And like, you're telling me, but that's all again, beyond me, interesting to know. But again, it's, it's, there, there have been many children raised on breast milk. There have been many children raised on formula. And I don't think, again, there's many, many studies, but the evidence is, I don't think the evidence that that's out there is currently like one of these things will make your child a genius and one of them will make your child just average. And, and yet the positioning often in hospitals in in lactation uh, clinics, and maybe again, in, in your experience, make it out like, well, if you're not doing it, then you're like putting your child at a serious disadvantage. And that's, and that's terrible. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's not going to make things better, especially if it's, if it's, if it's difficult. Right. And that's a, and that's something you're dealing with. Yeah. And I, you know, it's just one of the many ways that socially <laughs> we really treat mothers in, in an unfair manner and, you know, expect too much of them. And, uh, and uh, yeah, it, it was, um, it was kind of, uh, you know, um, illuminating and, and, and educational. Uh, but I really, I really felt for Zoe. And I, I feel like, uh, you know, if you're listening to this and, uh, you're, you're a mother who's having trouble breastfeeding or you're a father or you're related or anyone, you know, who may be going through this, I just think it's, it's good to understand the perspective that this is the kind of pressure that young mothers are under and that it's not deserved and that there's in most cases, very little that they can do to, to affect it. Um, and so, yeah, that, that, that really hit home for us. And uh, it seems like an appropriate time to reiterate all praise praise to the moms. All praise is due to moms. All praise to Zoe. Uh, she's the superhero of our family. Moms are superheroes as we know. You're, you're my superhero. All praise. Yeah. I wish if you, I wish people could see us in the studio. What we'll have to do is take a couple selfies sure. at which we do these praise yeah. sort of We're gesticulating stretches. Pretty, yeah, it's, pretty. It's, it's, it's pretty big. And it's, we just want to show you it's a lot of love. It's not like a small amount of love. It's all of the when love. When we say all praise, like it's all praise Being outstretched, being out, arms outstretched so that you can see we're here for you. We're here for you. Oh, boy. Um, this, yeah, this is Big Papa's. We're going to be talking about feeding. we got a special guest uh, coming up that Great we're going to talk about a little bit. So please stick with us because we'll be right back. Yeah. All right. Welcome back. It's Big Papa's. I'm Dan. That's Pierre. Today we're talking about feeding, and we have a very special guest on the line with us. Say hello to Mercedes Montagnus. Hi, Mercedes. Hi, Dan. How are you? So good. Thank you for being with us. Yeah, Mercedes, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. So Mercedes is the executive director at the Promise of Justice Initiative, a private nonprofit organization based in New Orleans that advocates for humane, fair, and equal treatment of individuals in the criminal justice system. That is a mouthful, and definitely, I feel like we could do an entire episode just talking about the work that you do and maybe how that relates to, you know, the way you approach parenting. Uh, You have a son. You live in New Orleans. Uh, Can you tell us just a little bit about your experience so far being a mother? Absolutely. Um, I think my experience as a mother is very much informed by the fact I was raised by a single mother. My mother, Daphne, was um, a really... Uh, involved and very uh, big personality, larger than life. And she died six years ago. And so I think that that has sort of informed a lot about what motherhood has meant to me and thinking about wanting to keep 
her exuberance and her creativity and her sort of enjoyment of life that she really instilled in me in my son's life. And it sort of challenged, I think, made me want to be more creative, expose him to more things and be active in my mothering. Um, my son was born a year ago. Um, and he's a really happy kid. I right. sort of, Those are the I'm best sort of, kind. <laughs> and I'm a serious person. I have a serious job. I don't play a lot. I work a lot. And so it is really fun and challenging to have this kid who's very silly and smiley and, um, is really forcing me to like stop and, um, and create that fun time in my life, which has been wonderful. That's awesome. Um, has anything happened recently that was memorable, any milestones or any just kind of funny things or developments maybe uh, that you've seen in Hugo? Well, it's been really funny. So he just turned a year and immediately, you know, now that he's a year, everyone's like, so is he walking? So is he walking? And he's not, he's really not very interested in walking. And I knew this would happen, but it is really interesting to watch that process of people sort of asking you about these developmental milestones and your, your kid doesn't need it. And you think like, what am I doing wrong? Do I need to encourage him to walk? And then I'll like spend a day being like, stand, Hugo, walk. And it's like, he doesn't want to, he's not interested. And just reminding myself and trying to like refocus my energy on like letting him be the best version of himself and happy and, and not that pressure. And it's funny because at a year I'm feeling it. And I imagine in ten years it will feel. Much he's got more. Uh, he's got his own interests and hobbies. You know, we we yes. talked about this. Uh, we've talked about this a little bit on the show before, which is just the idea of the percentile problem, right? You know, that just oh, yeah. people are. It comes to a point, and there's just in their own heads, they're like, one years old must be walking, not walking." I'm going to ask some questions. I'm going to make some judgments based on that. Also, what's your baby up to? It's yeah. a competition. My baby better be ahead of your baby, yeah. right? My baby speaks four languages at this, uh, this stage. What? Yep. Uh, <laughs> they can write. Uh, they're sign, they can sign language. <laughs> That's uh, fine. That counts as fun. Wow. Yeah, they're creating. Actually, and they're creating their own language, I think. That's like a secret thing. I don't know what it is or what they're saying, but I think <laughs> at some point... We'll figure it out. Well, as long as they're creating content, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what, oh, the, yeah. World is, that's what the world is about <laughs> these days. Speaking of content, we have a theme this week. The theme is feeding. Now, Mercedes, uh. Uh, Pierre and I went into, uh, in our little intro bit, kind of the experiences that we went through um, with the feeding of our babies and supporting our wives through their processes. Uh, wonder uh, if you can speak to what it was like, you know, very early on in Hugo's life and how you approached it and uh, if there's anything interesting to say about your process there with feeding absolutely so I breastfed Hugo for quite a while um, and initially I had the bib and I did the very like modest breastfeeding thing and it was really hot it was New Orleans in June and I was it was really driving me nuts and I remember my friend who's a lactation consultant saying to me if you breastfeed openly in public you make it easier for other people, which was the perfect thing to say to me because I'm a lawyer, I'm an advocate. And, and so I was like, that's true. And then it was like my mission to be very open about my breastfeeding. And I would sort of whip it out anywhere. And occasionally people <laughs> would give me like really dirty looks. And I would just like, no, I'm doing this for the other women. And that was like very helpful for me as a motivation because I think otherwise I would have. Um, felt much more self-conscious. And then it was very funny because 
once I went back to work and I was pumping, it was really annoying that certain people, you know, who are in and out of my office constantly, I have a staff and they're always asking me questions. And so I just essentially said to the, to the employees, I was like, to the women in the office, I was like, if you just knock and I say, come in, just know I'm breastfeeding. And like, if you don't, you don't have to come in if you don't want to, but ultimately trying to keep myself secluded stopped working. And, and so I was pretty open about it. Did you, uh, Mercedes, did you feel as if any of that was, was cultural? Uh, and the reason I say that is because um, my parents are Jamaican. And so I grew up around other, uh, other Jamaicans and, uh, it's not so much a thing. I mean, I mean, I remember the first time I might have seen it. Like, you know, my cousin, uh, my cousin's wife, you know, had a kid m- before we did, um, and you know, we'd just be chatting and I'd turn over. Oh, okay, hey, that's happening right now. I, in 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 that culture, it didn't seem as if it was so much of a big deal. Um, but again, I, I'm I'm hearing and I'm seeing things where it seems as if that's not always the case. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder, did you, did, you, did you find certain types of people would be, like, would be sort of outraged or uh, annoyed or, or kind of sort of, oh, what, what are you doing with that? Yeah, I mean, it was really funny around my in-laws. They live in North Carolina. They live in a rural area. And I think of all the places I breastfed, breastfeeding there was like the most challenging and I you know there with when their friends were over that was probably the only time when I would like go to a secluded area um when I was breastfeeding I do think it's extremely cultural um and I also think it's messy and it reminds people about mess and it reminds people about sort of bodily fluids and I think there's just a certain amount of uptightness about that um but I grew up in hippie Toronto so I feel like I grew up with it's surrounded by it and not at all phased by it. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's fair. It's, it's such an interesting topic. And I feel like, I feel like I've seen like, it's like the fodder for viral videos. Like that's the way this topic kind of is now. It's like, Oh, we, we, we put a woman on a bench and had her breastfeed for an hour. And then we put the same woman on a bench later, just showing some cleavage and you, you're not going to believe the difference in the response. And of all those videos that want you to click on them because you're not going to believe the response. Honestly, there's some vile shit thrown towards women who are just trying to feed their babies. And it's, I mean, it's it's unbelievable in so many ways and really disgusting. Did you ever have to deal with hostility from people? I didn't. I mean, I certainly felt there were places where had I tried to breastfeed, I might have. But I, in the end, I think especially my, you know, during my maternity leave, I was pretty cloistered around like friends and family. So I think I actually was pretty okay. Also, I'm, I think I, put out like a pretty aggressive vibe. <laughs> so I, I'm not sure anyone would have been really confrontational with me to be frank. <laughs> what, what were those places? Like, I, I'm just wondering what in your mind or were those spots where you're like, Oh, you know, here I feel comfortable, but over here, hmm, not so much. So I, I was going to try and breastfeed in federal court. Uh, wow. <laughs> just to be <laughs> aggressive about it. <laughs> And I ultimately decided that that was probably not good for my client's representation. And so I didn't, I didn't, I chose not to. And then there were a few times when we were traveling in airports where I did feel, especially like the current atmosphere I found since Trump was elected, traveling is a lot more heightened for me. And I'm really aware of sort of being, it's one of the times in my life when I'm probably 
fully like socially surrounded by the most people who disagree with me fundamentally on issues and I can feel it's palpable to me. And so I feel in that particular instance, there was sort of a tension that it made me want to be more secluded. Okay. Is there anything specifically relating to parenting that maybe you notice has kind of shifted socially with the way the political climate is? Absolutely. You know, I, at various times in my life, I, I've always been very politically active. Um, and I always thought and wondered how I would respond with my own child and whether or not my kid would be one of the kids with the signs or whether that would feel bad. And it's just sort of the times have demanded that my child be part of my political identity. And so Hugo comes to marches, Hugo wears orange, Hugo um, is, is, you know, the other day we went to a letter writing dinner where we wrote letters to um, senators begging them to stop separating these babies from their parents at the border. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that it has necessarily sort of catapulted me into a more political parenting phase than maybe I might have in a different time. Mercedes, what, uh, you know, I, I, have, I have a few friends who moved to the States, uh, um, many of them women, and I think one of the things that we always talk about when, you know, as we started having kids or as our sort of cohorts started having kids, it was this idea, you know, they lived here, so they, in Canada, so they knew what maternity leave was here. Um, maternity leave in, in the U.S. is obviously a very different beast. Um, mm-hmm. And I just, you were talking a little bit about pumping at work, and I think that's one of those weird, like, not a weird thing, but it's it's weird in the sense that, you know, let's say it, it's a year or whatever of, of breastfeeding that someone decides to do, and, and maybe they go back to work before that time, then there's just a whole period where you have to, if you're breastfeeding at that time, you've just got to keep it up at work. And that becomes a part of your daily routine. And that, again, not it's not that it's strange. It's just different. And there are probably people in the office who'd be like, wait, what's going on? Why is so-and-so taking so many breaks right now? <laughs> like, I don't get this many breaks because uh, because whatever reason. Like, God, Why this does is she unfair. get to yeah. take a break? <laughs> yeah. So how do you, I mean, how do you, how, and you, you said you grew up in hippie Toronto. Like, how do you square the relationship, or sorry, the, the, the way it is here in terms of a longer uh, maternity leave with, with what it is in the States and, and what that means to feeding and, and other things related to, uh, to parenting? Well, it's no doubt that it creates a lot of complication with feeding. I think um, it, it, you know, one of the things that you encounter when you're a mother who's feeding from work is that you're in this constant race to produce enough milk because your kid's at daycare and you're feeding the milk from yesterday. And if you're not producing enough the next day, then you either have to go into your freezer supplier, you have to supplement. And so it's this constant mental energy that's going into how many ounces did I get that pump and how many ounces am I going to get this pump and he needs this many ounces tomorrow. And, you know, sort of negotiating with the, with the daycare to be like, no, he doesn't need eight ounces in a feeding and sort of managing all of those various things. And I had an incredibly supportive daycare. And so I was really lucky, but it was, that was probably the hardest thing that said for me, three months was a good amount of time to be away from work. And I think it would have been a struggle for me to stay home for a whole year, just to be real about it. 
Well, that kind of, you know, obsessing over the ounces and the supply and all that is, is exactly what Zoe went through. And, uh, you know, to, to kind of watch that happen um, uh, and, and to watch her go through the process of accepting that using formula, you know, formula that's been scientifically <laughs> created to right. properly nourish the child. You know, you go from this position of thinking like, oh, we can't we can't possibly do that because it's unnatural to appreciating what it is. I wonder, you know, what kind of transition did you make out of uh, the breastfeeding and pumping as far as formula or milk or or solids and stuff like that? Well, so the, the, the formula thing was really hard. And I think, you know, someone said to me once, like, formula isn't rat poison, which was like a very helpful thing, because I do think that in our efforts as a society to normalize breastfeeding, we have in some ways necessarily demonized formula in this way that is not fair. And also, I think, creates a lot of shame for people that's unreasonable. And I think one thing I've sort of reconciled in my head and thought a lot about was going into this, having watched a lot of my friends struggle with breastfeeding, I, I was, people would say, are you planning to breastfeed? And I was, I would say, yes, if I can, but if I can't, I recognize that like, that's, that doesn't happen for everyone. And it's just, it was such a process of acceptance. And I wish that I had been much easier on myself in retrospect. And I hope with my second child, I will, feel more comfortable supplementing earlier and less worried about, you know, producing enough all the time. Cause it just, it, it colored my ability to just enjoy my kid. Do you, so as again, as a, as, as the guy in a, with my, with my wife, uh, when she had, uh, when she had our daughter Zadie, it was, we went through our own, uh, or she went through, I should say her own struggles with breastfeeding. And I think, there's an element of it that's obviously tied to what's considered being a mom, right? I mean, I, I think that was a part of it. There was a time where she felt like, wait, am I a good enough mom if this part is going not the way I expected? And I wonder, you know, what you could maybe tell us about your experience. I mean, I think we've heard a little bit about it, but but how do you sort of square the two things? Well, one of the things I thought about before going on this podcast is that I think, you know, I was raised by a single mom and she was like a mama bear. And this primacy of like motherhood as being something that is sort of needing to be central and the like source of all nourishment. I think that that narrative is out there in a really strong way. And I think it can at times, at least for me, feel really alienating and make it really hard when you have to make choices like that. And I think ultimately, you know, the last time my son breastfed, I was like kind of aware that that was going to be the last time he was going to breastfeed. Cause he just was like not increasingly disinterested in it. And it was sad. And there was a certain amount of mourning this relationship, but there was also just this really, for me, optimism around the fact that like now his dad and I were truly going to be, providing him with the same set of things and that that you know we were both fully capable of giving him those things and I think there is a certain freedom in that for me but also like joy to watch my husband play just like an equal role in his life that's so great you're saying so much stuff that's I think so useful to to dads who are listening um I wonder you know, when it comes to your experience, is there anything that you can identify that maybe 
could help a partner or even other people that are involved in the lives of young mothers to help them not feel this kind of guilt around the breastfeeding or or this need to uh, perform on a certain level? You know, those expectations are so high. Is there any way to kind of uh, reverse or undercut that backwards way of looking at this stuff? The most helpful way for me to think about it is that being happy for my son is the most important thing. And in his life, when I'm happy and relaxed is when I see the most noticeable difference in how he is. And so when I had these unproductive thoughts, I just really try to like create a new narrative, which is like the happier I am, the better off he's going to be. And I think that's just true. And so as much as you can stress like the mother's happiness and the mother's like lack of pain or whatever it is that they're going through, none of that is worth being so unhappy that you can't enjoy your kid because ultimately that's like a way more damaging thing because frankly the science on breastfeeding, there's obviously some advantages, but it is not, there's not, there's not evidence that breastfeeding provides long-term effects in a, in a very big way. So for example, one of the things they say is that you have a better digestive system. I was exclusively breastfed for a year. I have a terrible digestive system. (laughs) (laughs) My husband was given literally formula with rice cereal in it at the hospital the day he was born in rural North Carolina and he has a stomach of steel. So, you know, there may be patterns and trends, but like overall we don't, see massive outcome differentiation and i think that's important to remember i can't wait to play this for zoe she's gonna love to hear that yeah it's a good uh, uh we should play was, this for every mom before yeah, before they go through it you know and I, I i really think uh you know that message of happiness um that's really that's what it is right you know that that's what matters the most and in a very general way you know, uh, the guiding principle of having a kid and being a family ought to be that collective happiness. Um, we're going to take a little bit of a break. There's plenty more we can talk about here with you, Mercedes, and uh, we'll do just that. We'll be right back on Big Papas. Yeah. Okay, we're back. This is Big Papas. I'm Pierre Hamilton. We're here with Dan. Say what's up, Dan. Yeah, what up? And also our special guest, Mercedes Montagnus, Executive Director at The Promise of Justice. Mercedes, welcome back. Thank you. We just wanted to get a little bit uh, into your history and and, and maybe just wanted to know a little bit about what drew you to the civil um, uh, rights-related legal world and and what you do and, and, and sort of why you do it. Absolutely. Well, I grew up in Toronto. Uh, I became very politically involved under Premier Mike Harris, which may be familiar to some of us. Um, And I did a lot of sort of direct action work around educational issues when I was in high school. And um, I moved to the U.S. and in 2004, after the election was stolen in 2000, um, I got involved in a coalition of folks around helping people who are formerly incarcerated get their voting rights back. And I think for, uh, as a Canadian, that was a really crazy idea that somehow you would lose your right to have a voice in your democracy because you've been convicted of a crime. But it was much more insidious than that. It was a, it was a direct effort to stop mostly African-American people from voting in an effort to essentially secure Republican power. 
And it was my window into the criminal justice system and the many ways in which it has been manipulated to um, hurt people of color in the United States and, and frankly, um, all over North America. And um, really just, I became incredibly passionate about it. I went to law school um, wanting to do it and I've been doing it ever since I graduated. It's um, trying to work against the criminal justice system um, or the criminal injustice system, as we like to call it, um, in whatever ways I can find. Do you find it challenging to separate the kind of intensity of your work world um, with the, you know, normalcy and the joy that you're trying to create in the life of being a parent? I do. You know, there are days when I come home and I have borne witness to some pretty intense stuff. And uh, finding a way to really stop it at the door. I, I usually I put my phone down, you know, as soon as I step through the door. Um, and, you know, my husband and I have tried to be really intentional about some things. Like we have a blow up pool in our backyard that we fill with water. And we grab a cocktail and our son and we go sit in the pool with him. And it's really fun. And he just has a blast and it really resets me. And I really only get an hour and a half with him at night. And so I try to just really focus as I'm driving home on, I'm going to go be with Hugo. I need to enjoy that time with him. Um, and whatever else is going on, I really want to be present for him. And so it, 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 you have to be very intentional about it. And what's on the, maybe tell us a little bit about what's on the flip side of that. When you go, so you go home, you spend an hour and a half with him, with Hugo, and then the next day you're going, you're going back to work. What, what are you bringing back to the experience? So I think there's a lot as a parent that have made me, it's made me a better boss. It's made me a more empathetic boss. It's made me, I think in some ways, a more patient person. And then it's just as a parent, it's all the things that you think. You're just a, a lot more efficient. I think my ability as a trial lawyer to juggle a lot of things helps me juggle things as a parent and vice versa. I mean, in many ways, my job requires me to balance a lot of needs in any given moment. And that's as a parent and as a wife and a mother at the same time. I think many times it's the same muscles that you're flexing. Um, and I really... I think a lot because I have models of friends whose kids are very much involved in their work in really intense ways and maybe more than I would want. And I have models of friends who I don't think their kids could tell you what they did for a living. And that feels a little too disjointed. And so trying to figure out how much Hugo is going to be a part of it. My staff love him. You know, when he comes to the office, people enjoy seeing him. There is a family atmosphere there. So trying to really balance those two things is a challenge. You answered that question before I even asked it, but uh, <laughs> that idea of, you know, yeah, how much exposure, you know, if your kid's five, six, seven, you know, how much how much does he know about what it is that you do? And I, I guess, you know, you do want him to know, like we were saying earlier, as far as, uh, you know, his political awareness is. Um, so anyways, that, that's really interesting to hear you uh to hear you talk about it, I was just about to ask you about it. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask, you know, on Big Papa's, we're talking about fatherhood. We've gotten a ton of stuff uh, from you that's really specific to being a mom and, and to your experience. I wonder, it sounds like your husband is pretty involved. Um, are there good parenting behaviors or patterns that he's exhibiting that you have a particular appreciation for? Absolutely. I think 
I am a multitasker. And so oftentimes when I'm with Hugo, I'll like play with him and then I'll load the dishwasher and then I'll play with him and I'll do something else. And my husband is just a hundred percent present with my son when they're together. They have a lot of fun. They're silly. And he's just very much in the moment with him in a way that I admire and try to simulate, but just by the nature of who I am, have a lot more difficulty just being only with Hugo. And I find that, you know, we actually try to get out of the house as much as possible because that helps me just like focus on him and not look around and think like, I got to water that plan. I got to, you know, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Do do you see that as being... um... A modern thing? I mean, again, one of the things we're trying to talk about on the show is just how being a dad might have changed from, you know, our parents' generation, generation before that, and, you know, many, many, many generations before Father then. knows best. Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's, I think it's still, I think, a concept or a, a belief that, you know, women are the primary um, uh, ch- child rearers and, and that... Mm-hmm men are some, you know, sort of kind of absent-minded and, and not really thinking about it. So it's interesting to hear you say that, that, that he's the one that's really focused. I mean, where, where does he get that from? That's just who he is as a person. Like, frankly, our personalities are different in that way. I just am a much more multitasker and he's drills down is very thorough. That's how we are as attorneys. We're both civil rights attorneys. That's much more his style. Um, than mine when, when he's litigating as well. And so I think it spills over into every aspect of our life. But I also think that I've tried to make a very deliberate decision to think about fatherhood and motherhood in very equal ways. I think it's difficult right now for men. To, they don't have good role models of like how to be a father. And I think also there's this pressure in society for like the virtuous mother <laughs> that simultaneously like overtakes everything. And there's some like extra virtue in me nurturing my son. And I just think that's, that construct is equally unhelpful um, for, at least sure. for me. Well, it seems like not just with your husband, but probably with, you know, some of the, the dads that, you know, the community that you're in um, that you're, tapped into a fairly progressive parenting um, kind of headspace. Uh, I just wonder, what are some things that you think dads can do to nurture and advance the evolution of the role of fatherhood into that kind of egalitarian um, ideal that we're, that we're talking about? I think it's about really being deliberate. So um, a few months ago, my husband and I were sharing a lot of the pick up and drop up Hugo, but my husband's office is a couple blocks away and mine is across town. And I just turned to him and I said, like, I'm not thriving. And the way that we have this set up for me, traffic wise, if I drop Hugo off, it adds like another 45 minutes to an hour off my day. And I just can't, that one hour of time in the car is killing me. Mm. And we remade our schedule and we did sort of like our plan. And I think We've made very, very deliberate choices that have helped both of us thrive. And I think you can't just pretend that this is going to happen naturally because people have personalities and people have ways of being and patterns in their lives. And so I think one way is to just be extremely deliberate about it. Um, And then I, I think the other thing that I've noticed is that whoever in our family has like done the research about that particular thing becomes the person that does that particular thing. (laughs) 
So I know a lot about medical stuff. I'm a neurotic Jewish woman (laughs) who knows a lot about ailments. And so when it comes to Hugo's like doctor's appointments and health and all that stuff, I am like much more involved and much more deliberate about it. Um, but when it comes to like feedings and things like that, currently like his food that he's eating and exposing him to food, my husband's much more involved in that. So I think it just, that's the other part is that you have to do the research and become expert on things. And that enables you to like take that piece of their life a little bit. Nice. Yeah. It sounds like it's a, one of the things is really about communication, right? You know, the idea that maybe in the past it was sort of, you know, I'll just let this other person figure it out. Whereas, you know, the I think Dan and I have talked about this and it sounds like the situation is the same for you, but where it's really a, a, a conversation about, you know, hey, look, I'm actually closer. It's perfectly easy for me to go and drop them off. That gives you your time to be able to go to work or do whatever needs to be done. And then we come back and sure, you can take on this other piece instead. And so, you know, really, again, making sure that it's an equitable relationship means that you have to have a conversation to be able to talk about what's needed and then what situation fits what partner better. Um, so that's, that's good to hear. Well, it was a real pleasure to speak to you today, Mercedes. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, thanks for having me. I, I always enjoy talking about both of these things, but thank you so much. <laughs> thanks, Mercedes. Bye. I'm waving. Bye. I'm waving. <laughs> We're all done. This is the end of the episode. Great episode. Yeah, it was a good episode. Uh, see us. Come join us again. Uh-huh. Episode six, season finale. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna just wrap things up. This is gonna be the end. It's gonna be a good one. Yeah, I'm excited. Dan, well, you excited? I'm so, I'm so excited. I'm glad we made it this far. Uh, it's been great through five, and uh, we're gonna cap off season one in style next week, and uh, and then get cracking on season two as soon as we can. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. We will be back next week. See ya.